0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Prip Pop, it's Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Clark, aka Sci-Fi Stephen of BIS, formed in 1994. This is a great conversation with Stephen. We, we really do a deep dive into the history of BIS, their reforming, writing again and future projects as well. Uh, Stephen really does lift the lid off. Loads and loads of interesting stuff. Anyway, let's get cracking because it's a good one. As per usual, I'll be back after the conversation to talk about social media, where you can follow me, and all the other stuff. If you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know the drill. In the meantime, here's Stephen. Get
1: out of my way. Sure, sure, pop, Do she? Down?
0: Welcome to the podcast, Stephen Clark. How are you?
1: I'm very well, very well, as well as well as can be expected, I suppose. But yes,
0: <laughs> it's, it's um, it's been a very tricky uh, situation for everybody. Have have you been finding life in general in the last six months?
1: Well, uh, yeah, that's a that's a, <laughs> that's a big question. It's uh, certainly uh, nothing could have prepared any of us for any of this. So yeah, it's been a it's been a real kind of uh, work wise, been very difficult. I run bars, which is not. Uh, not the safest industry to be in just now, um, mm. and I get a bit like uh, I think you were talking about, uh, you know, going through old records and whatnot. I've uh, as soon as lockdown one kicked in, I just went uh, into a similar sort of um, deep dive. Where where I am now, although you obviously you won't see me on this, but you know where I'm doing this from was just a was just a cabin that I've been meaning to. To uh, do stuff with in the back garden for ages, and uh, behind me is uh, a load of vinyl taken out of the loft and some uh, instruments. So I've turned this into a home studio that I've been meaning to do for ages. So that there's that for me is a massive positive because it's uh, uh, that gives me somewhere to actually go to and work from when I couldn't actually do my proper job. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think in some ways the lockdown is a real, a real kind of clear, clearing the mental tubes a little bit. So I've done done some archiving, consolidated some music projects. So as soon as I'd done all that, then uh, society opened up again, and now uh, that looks a little uh, less secure. So, um, it's, it's, yeah. it's the
0: the future is not looking bright again, is it? Uh,
1: At this particular time, it's uh, it's definitely got a bleak scent to it. <laughs> but, uh,
0: well, it's a perfect time to to be nostalgic about well, more. Indeed, indeed, I did, I did, I,
1: yeah, I very much said the same thing the first. Yeah. Uh, Like being stuck, you know, unable to go to work, and still having, you know, having having all the kids in the house. I just I found myself doing a similar thing of just uh, like listening to tunes from my early teenage years, and just you know, the first thing I did was make a big playlist on Spotify called Sci-Fi Stevens Emotional Safety Net, and it was just music from (laughs) you know the the very late 80s to the you know kind of period from about 88 to 92, where I was absolutely obsessed with music and. Digging out records in the loft, and you just you know you've forgotten about so many tunes, and yeah, it was just that kind of you know, before adulthood kicked in. Is that kind of that's that's the that's the soundtrack you want if you want to feel safe and secure again, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I find with me as well. I found things that I just. I still can't get rid of like postcards when media used to be sort of more tactile and and you know, the promo cards and things that used to get on mailing lists. Yeah, I've got boxes of that and posters and just stuff I used to yeah. cut out of select magazines of, of, you know, um, posters of things that I just thought looked cool. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, the badges and all that sort of thing. It just, I just can't, I can't get rid of it. It's just such a big, such a big part of my, my life there must be a,
1: there must be a few po boxes in Leamington spa that are suspiciously <laughs> empty now after the after the 90s it was always there wasn't it yeah absolutely
0: yeah <laughs> that was a surprise i mean because obviously you know if you um you bought like the music press and i i did and I, i've said on the podcast yeah. before is so that it was one of those religious things i did on a wednesday was with you know one in each under each arm after college or something and just yeah, you know so. you know if you'd miss something because it or whatever you would just get the the postcard drop through the box or a leaflet and you'd be like oh there's an album coming out that yeah, uh, yeah. or a single and and they it, you know it would go up on the wall and uh, if you're lucky enough to catch them in your local venue and things like that you'd keep the stubs uh or not the stubs but the tickets and, yeah absolutely. And, and yeah i mean it just seems to me that there's a whole kind of part of that tactileness of music that's that's missing but i guess it's been replaced by something completely different and and something a little bit more urgent and a bit more instant i guess
1: yeah yeah totally i mean i'm, I'm the same as you I, I my childhood bedroom growing up was just covered in the uh, clippings from the nme or melody maker or even sounds i'm just uh, i go that far back uh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah but just be obsessed with you know it, it, yeah that's it that was the only well it was the main way of finding out about bands uh, if john peel didn't like them then the only way you were going to find out about them was an nme and you couldn't hear them unless somebody played them or so you were just, you know, you had to buy the physical product, and you know, I, I made I made some some sonic mistakes by believing that the uh, the font used or the artwork involved would lead to a certain sound, but it didn't. <laughs> um, that's why I've still got. Uh, I won't mention any names because we'll all be friends now. But certain bands I I tried desperately to get into because I liked the artwork, or I'll you know, or I or I, I believe press enough to be like, I'm going to keep trying to like this band. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah
1: total classics but yeah uh, but yeah the tactile element certainly yeah just uh, I would you know when I had when I had money or I had you know saved up money I would just buy singles on every format available like I'd buy the 7 inch the 12 inches even the tape uh, just to have it you know that collector thing would really kick in even though I slagged it off the collector uh, (laughs) mentality kind of ripped it apart and later lyrics at the time you know when I was a when I was a teenager I was absolutely obsessed with having everything I could have I felt like an imposter if I didn't own every single piece of music that Blur had made for example you know and, uh, but yeah that's but as you say now it's just very much you don't own anything but you've got access to everything immediately so, yeah, so yeah. Uh, it's, but it's easier to hear things so
0: I shun CDs for so long I just mm-hmm. couldn't Get my head around them, really. It was everyone I knew was like just buying them and, and, and buying CD players and stuff. And so, for me, the just the um the feel of a cassette and and cassette singles as well, and the yeah. and the amount of effort and some of the creativity around some of the once they sort of some artists learned to sort of branch up away from kind of just the the, the 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 cardboard wrap, you would then get like a couple of ones spring to, to mind, like the sleeper yeah. um uh, cereal box and the yeah. the. the cigarettes and alcohol kind of cigarette packet and all that sort yeah. of thing and all that um i know it's coming back a bit as well because I, I was out well before lockdown i saw a band and they they'd uh, released a cassette and they they spent so much time on it Not um totally. individually numbered and everything and just thought i I love this thing i can't play on anything <laughs> no, no 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 that's it
1: it's, it's made a comeback uh yeah i guess just it's the cheapest physical format to make and essentially it's about it's really just about monetizing a, a download code, isn't it? But at, the, but at the same time, it's it gives. Yeah. A, a, it's an inexpensive way for a band to actually give themselves a physical manifestation, like product-wise. So, yeah, I'm the same. I've got tapes back here which I'm just simply will never play. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, <laughs> the other one's very uh, "Connection" by Elastica was done like a <laughs> like a pack of cards, yeah, cassette single, and uh, I'm sure "Blurs Girls and Boys" was was the uh, was designed like a packet of condoms as yeah, well. so, yeah 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 bring all that stuff back that was great
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what bands were you uh were you into then what were your kind of musical influences growing I up i think
1: uh, i mean yeah as i say i, I was pretty much obsessed with the music newspapers from i guess when i was about 11 10 or 11 uh first started seeing what i subsequently found out was alternative music the main my main memories is seeing infected by the the, the film when I, mean, I was far too young for it but it was on channel four really late at night and then I feel like pretty soon after I saw a uh, True Faith video by New Order and I was you know that was the first time my mum would have said what the, <laughs> what the f are you listening to or watching here and I was like uh, yeah this is for me then and so I think I, I watched certain anytime I knew, knew there was a music program on channel four or BBC2 like Snub TV or whatever I'd be young but I sort of remember chancing upon this kind of scratchy guitar sound so yeah I guess a a quick overview (laughs) would be basically New Order Joy Division because Joy Division were the same band at a time where it was ridiculous to like them or nobody else in my class at school would have the faintest clue Uh, then the entire Manchester thing I totally went nuts for that but that you know charlatans and spiral carpets mainly happy mondays not so much the stone roses but still like that entire thing mm. obsessed me but out of that came firstly like, 808 state which gave me a massive interest in synths and drum machines and the programming because you know even the limited way that I was making music at that age was, was on a drum machine I'm totally um, inspired by the drum programming Graham Massey and even you know the rave scene the prodigy and whatnot just getting really trying, really understanding rhythms uh, so mm-hmm. that they sort of quite a lot of the drum machine synthie, techno elements that uh, we had in our music this comes from that sort of era after yeah basically everything that the NME told me to like um, I kind of did even the shoegaze thing massive into that <laughs> as well yeah. so yeah as I say I'm just like I loved Blur and Oasis in 1993 and 94. Um, it's just I just consumed everything, and I think that's you know that's partly why we went into the music industry so well informed musically, but also pretty, you know prematurely cynical. So that we grew up with that music, and then I think as soon as we started being a semi-proper band, people told us that we sounded like a lot of bands that massively predated my you know record buying days. So anything from 1977. Uh, 77, 78, 79, 79 mostly, uh, up to the 82 all of a sudden all these Rough Trade bands, Human League, Devo and all these bands that people would said we sounded like mm. which was to- was almost totally accidental um, in places but that kind of overtook all the music so I basically abandoned, abandoned the enemy and the Melody Maker and what was new and just and, you know completely just went head first into the, the late 70s. I suppose one, this is a slight non sequitur to the question but what one thing that was different about this was that we were very inspired by essentially English post-punk music or just English music in general. Uh, Scotland had a different sound in the 80s and 90s and a lot of the bands in Scotland focused almost entirely on American music. Like, I mean you know there was such a big Sonic Youth influence in a lot of the bands. In Glasgow, mm. especially, and we were the odd ones because we actually didn't hate Britpop, or you know, uh, we didn't, you know, basically, I'm talking about Mogwai hating Blur, and now that's you know, <laughs> that everyone yeah. else has to hate, everyone else hates Blur. So, we had we were the most Anglo, <laughs> if you want, uh, like, we weren't trying to destroy British pop music uh, in a way that sort of set us apart, and that's that's probably because we were so obsessed, me especially, with the. Uh, the music press you know it. it's supposed to be another main influence that came out of all the news the music newspaper days and you know tv programs like the word was that was getting to see the real underground bands like stereo lab and huggy bear and the, mm. the, you know that that was an introduction to them that we wouldn't necessarily have because we were all too young to go to gigs at that time so
0: yeah well i remember you know, um with the word as well you know just hovering Around the the lounge door, just sort of saying, "Well, I want to watch this program, and they're like, "Well, you know it is getting late sort of thing and I like, well, because yeah. you just want to know what was on there, and I couldn't record it uh, for whatever reason, but it yeah. was it was kind of embarrassing and exciting at the same time because with that program, you had obviously exposure to so many great performances and like now kind of iconic performances that are, you know you can watch back on YouTube as being like a, a seminal moment for the band mm-hmm. but and then then you had like you had to then endure. The hopefuls and the other sort of cringe worthy kind of stuff they used to do yeah, in front of in front of people that you know you just want to sit and enjoy and absorb it on your own and i remember just
1: one of the one of the worst or not, it's not even a regret we just never had the chance but i always really wanted to be on the word because i knew you could get away with certain things and you could do something like really ridiculous
0: <laughs> yeah yeah never got a chance well there's the, the whole nirvana thing where they did um, uh, what's the song that's gone out of my head yeah. when he played it when he sung it completely oh no that was top of the pops actually. that's top of the pops uh, yeah, yeah he, uh, Cobain. He sang, spells
1: like teen spirit like Morrissey yes. apparently that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the legend yeah uh, the, the, the word one is when he he declares Courtney Love to be the, the best fuck in the world that's, oh, see, that's yes. uh, yeah I had all these things taped and just watched them over and over again that's it just I mean, you, you, VHS after VHS just full of bits of the word chart show indie chart shows top of the pops appearances just as all watched uh, apart from football <laughs>
0: Um, I was going to ask you really, in terms of picking up an instrument and, and sort of writing lyrics and or, or just the writing process in general, when did that kind of start happening for you?
1: Well, I, I guess um, uh, me and John from the band obviously being brothers um, and therefore having to grow up in the same house, we were, uh, as soon as, yeah, as soon as there was any music in the house, like my mum, our mum is uh, a music teacher and sort of, so there was always records in the house. Uh, it was lots of 60s records and just basically we were given a box of seven inches like very early on and one of those old Dan Set style record players Uh, and so we'd just go through all our mum's records and we knew which ones we liked and then because we had to share a room for so long as well Um, and then the early 80s I mean like I was only be five or whatever but just remember being mad and Adam and the Ants and just you know we would just listen to those records over and over again um, and so so yeah basically me and John just were forced into having the same influences. weirdly the 60s records that we we kind of absorbed the most out with the Beatles would be really weird things like pictures of matchstick men, the status quo was on all the time. Oh yeah. Hoodoo <laughs> du- Child, Jimi Hendrix and then just some mad stuff that Apple had released like you know kind of uh, like Raga as in with one G. Uh, like, <laughs> Buddhist chant records and whatnot. There's, you know, when the uh, Shaker came out with Govinda, it was like, no, no, we've uh, we've we've got this <laughs> '70s record that's uh, the Govinda Jaya Jaya one. But for whatever reason, we listen to that all the time. So, um, but in terms of actually making music, I think maybe for my like tenth birthday or something, we we got a Casio keyboard, which had inbuilt rhythms and kind of like preset chords. Uh, so you would hit one one key and it would you know you'd hit A and it would play an A major chord with a rhythm attached and so we would just mess about with that probably yeah but you know late 80s would just be trying to basically work out how new order songs worked and then John maybe got a guitar when he was eight or nine Um, and so yeah we were just I, I don't really remember there's lots of there's some hilarious tapes that are marked this 1988, and it's just <laughs> like <laughs> very primitive songs, mostly called things that sound like new order songs. Um, but then anyway, we fast track, not even that much, but yeah, we got a proper drum machine, we got a rolling drum machine in about 1990. And I, as I said, just spent ages trying to copy 808 state drum beats. And so, uh, in very very early 1991, me and John, and I was, I was 14, and John was 11, and we went into a proper. Recording studio, um, having kind of rehearsed in the same place for a good year before that, and we in a day we recorded a three-track demo. <laughs> I'm not too proud to admit that the main song was called Marmalade Skies, and I'm sure I've heard that lyric in someone's <laughs> song before. But um, basically, sounded like it sounded a bit like. Definitely, all the vocals are Tim Burgess inflected, and the the drum program is total total the shaman. Just ripped off the shaman's drum beats as well. It sounds like Progen or something. So, uh, so that'll be thirty years old as of uh, March next year. So, so yeah, we we kind of we were a little bit uh, we were young stars uh, in the Glasgow scene. <laughs> and the guys that run the studio in the rehearsal room were just would just marvel at our at like uh, commitment to it and just how loud we like to play. Um, so we were we we and John have been well known in the Glasgow music scene since the very early nineties. Uh, it just took us a good while to actually chance upon a sound that actually got us somewhere so um, yeah. But yeah yeah that that demo is hilarious maybe one day we'll let <laughs> it out i've got a dat tape right in front of me
0: you're going to re-release it and, and then tour it i think i think when this all kind of dies down
1: i think so yeah just that <laughs> one song over and over again in various forms <laughs> yeah.
0: so you did eventually become a, a free piece obviously with with manda yeah. but what she was slightly younger than you were the same age as john is that right or
1: she's in between me and john so ah, okay um, yeah basically Amanda was the only other person at our school that was remotely into any indie music at all. Um, Or at least that's what it felt like. She would, me and John would do gigs at school, just the two of us. And she was kind of the only person that would enthusiastically attend. And so early 1993, we all went together, all underage admittedly. We all went together and the first band we ever saw live together, all three of us, was Suede at the Glasgow Plaza. (laughs) <laughs>
0: which
1: um, yeah, bore uh, bore no resemblance to the music that we ended up making, but um, yeah, we just kind of like started hanging out. Uh, me and Amanda started going out as a couple, and so we were pretty much like hanging about. I'd be hanging about with Amanda all day, and then <laughs> sometimes John would get to sort of uh, join in the music thing. <laughs> uh, and Amanda, Amanda wasn't really wanting to be involved or anything, but just the more we listened to records, and then we would just we would mess about with a four track uh, tape recorder and and uh, up in my room and she would mess about with a guitar and then came up with this really you know just classic straightforward punk riff which I was just like oh that's brilliant let's make a song out of that and that that became Kill Your Boyfriend and that was genuinely the first song that Amanda had written it was just like just a chord sequence I put a riff on it we recorded it and then yeah Amanda just wrote down some quick words recorded it um, and somehow and I still don't know how this happened uh, but very quickly, it got played on Radio Scotland, and it was like I, just, I still don't know how somebody got that tape because I don't remember like handing it out to too many people. <laughs> it was still a little bit of a kind of like, well, this is a bit funny, and uh, it was really rough. And it's um, but it sounded really great on the radio, and uh, so I think that gave us confidence to just kind of go a bit more um, musically a you know, route where we were shouting a bit more. Uh, the, the Riot Girl influence was kind of brought to the fore, but. But all our kind of more traditional classic guitar pop synth pop sort of influences were still there as well and we that's yeah we just kind of we sort of facilitated to do what we accidentally ended up doing which was kind of scatter shot approach but um, but yeah that's how it happened really
0: In terms of like getting yourself out there and, and gigging and stuff well did you find that sort of it was becoming more and more easier because obviously the radio play and you were starting to sort of there was a little bit of a buzz around you was, was yeah. it was it quite easy just to sort of start picking up and, and gaining a fan base and playing live
1: well we um there was a very tight knit community in glasgow at the time so we'd kind of been doing gigs ourselves like promoting ourselves because we were all underage so we had to play and like we had to play in Sunday afternoons and stuff like this, you know, and they would they weren't allowed to sell alcohol and things like that. So we were, it was always a bit frustrating because we just couldn't get to play with the bands that we knew would like us locally. Um, yeah, and so eventually the radio play definitely brought our name to a bit, of, uh, you know, a bit of attention to the name. But it's, the main person that helped us out at that time, like like ninety four or whatever, 93, 94, 94 Yeah, uh, Alex. Kapranos from Franz Ferdinand was promoting Nights at the 13th Note uh, and I gave him a tape. He was in a band called The Blisters at the time. Uh, so we'd, we'd kind of go and see them, all underage, but we got let in. Uh, so we'd see bands like The Blisters, other bands, uh, Yura Zayatsura, that went on to do to do, to do reasonable acclaim. They were promoting Nights and had a fanzine. Yeah, they had a fanzine called Kitten Frenzy and they would put on Nights and would ask us to play. Um, and we still hadn't got our, our act completely together, but Alex from france Ferdinand would, or from the blisters at the time, would, would just continually put us on in these nights called the Kazoo Club, which was free and was upstairs in the 13th note. And then if you were good at the Kazoo Club, you got to play the 99 pence club, which was downstairs uh, and obviously cost 99 pence to get in. So, uh, so yeah, he just he just kept putting us on because he liked us. Uh, and so we were able to, to really hone our craft a bit and just, you know, actually be able to work out what songs were working, and we ditched a lot more of the more indie stuff, uh, and we we started writing you know songs songs that we eventually started releasing like uh, School Disco and TC Power or all these kind of gang th- songs that we started making. We you know we had a kind of whilst this the sound was all over the place in terms of influence. The lyrical narrative was kind of a very much gang mentality, us against the world sort of thing. we would would name drop ourselves in lyrics like like we were a hip-hop act and all this, we just so we'd kind of, yeah we were carefree but at the time at the same time very careful about what we were putting in the songs and getting rid of all the slack in a song and just going this is two minutes it doesn't have to be longer. That was you know just by getting to play live locally for sure yeah.
0: If you think about the era as well I mean you were consciously, I don't know whether you you did it as well as the, the whole Britpop thing was in full effect yeah. or maybe even when potentially you started to sort of get sort of critical acclaim if you like or become more 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 uh, mainstream yeah. although you weren't technically mainstream but you know what i mean oh. <laughs> um it's like a, a direct opposite to that sound if you like like an antidote to that kind of sound yeah, now, yeah. was it also something you were very conscious of of not falling into the uh, into the pigeonhole of the Britpop pop scene
1: yeah, it's, yeah there must have been an element of that to it but i just think we were we were just enjoying collecting all of our influences into what seemed to us like a a unique sound you know it was kind of like um we didn't at that time we couldn't there wasn't really anyone that sounded like us um active you know it was very much a as I say we get compared to certain acts and whatnot but for us it was yeah I mean in terms of relation to Britpop this yeah I don't think we were we kind of positioned ourselves later on in the press when when pushed on it as we were an anti- anti-Oasis, anti-Shed7 or whatever we were kind of cajoled into taking a position on it but the truth is we had all these records and we you know we, we really loved Blur, this goes without saying there's so many Blur influences in our records and um, we loved Supergrass we just you know um, so we probably we didn't deliberately put ourselves diametrically opposite to Britpop um, and we probably you know we would, at the time we would have taken umbrage to be lumped in with the Britpop scene but in actual fact all you're talking about is bands of an era that had a sort of similar range of influences. there's not one band that I like from the Britpop era still that wasn't influenced in one way or another by Wire. <laughs> so know, yeah. yeah, that's your Elastica, your Blur, your Salad, all the slightly more art school you know angular bands had this a uh, Wire Gang of Four thing at the heart and we we had a bit of that as well so so yeah it, we, I suppose at the time we we felt like we were an alternative to it but also we didn't we didn't think we were we weren't trying to compete in a scene at all we were just very much on our own um, on our own ship you know even even the bands that we ended up touring with or playing gigs with relatively often the Super Furry Animals we, we were mentally <laughs> on the same wavelength as them but musically it came out totally different you know it was but it was the same melding of a load of disparate influences. Yeah, definitely something unique. And so we sounded completely different to them, but at the same time, just total spiritual cousins of ours. So that's the way I like to look at this: is is that we didn't, you know, we didn't ever settle on one sound either. So, but yeah, at the, at the time, as we, as I say, we were we were big music fans as well. We'd we'd go down to London and we'd. We knew we had to go and speak to a record company, but at the same time, we made sure we got down early enough so that we could go and spend all our pocket money on rough trades. So, you know, we're just big music consumers.
0: How did the um, the Top of the Pops things come about? I know that's kind of like one of those legendary things that doesn't happen very often. And obviously, Top of the Pops has been off the TV now for a long time. And I think it's certainly a, a massive shame that we don't have any youth I say yeah. you know not ironically youth program exactly. or, or music program that that could sort of joins people together at a certain at a certain time I think is a massive shame but I mean how did this thing come about because it, at the time as I say you were the first unsigned band to play
1: yeah that's uh, that that's how they advertised it which uh, indie historians <laughs> of which I am one will uh, refute that as a fact but uh, certainly <laughs> that's the that's fine you print the legend um yeah and it essentially we had a record coming out on a record label and all those things but we hadn't ever signed a contract. Uh, neither did New Order so you know as, as I say I know my history. <laughs> yeah but yeah essentially yeah, it kind of it was a buzz about as uh, The kind of like you know we were we would feature in this you know hot new band for 96 or whatever and um, we even we even got nominated for uh, NME like a brat award for 1995 as being been like hot newcomer, so it was like it was preordained that we would break at some time. Um, but the way it happened was probably was not planned, and it was not the way that it would normally happen. Um We were just we were onto uh, with the super furry animals, uh, and you know we, we were we were getting on the radio. Kids were coming out to see us. Uh, Ian Candy Pop just all of a sudden was kind of like on the major playlists at Radio One. And we we were just sitting in the van going to somewhere, with no disrespect, but somewhere really exciting like Tunbridge Wells or something. Uh, and just got a phone call in the van on on one of those big massive mobile phones that w- I was embarrassed that we had with us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it, was, it was a case of just like uh, gig tonight or gig tomorrow's cancelled because you're going to they, they want you on top of the pops. And it's it's, just, it's as straightforward as that. It's just it didn't really come as a surprise, even though it was. You know it was quite big news for the music press to be like oh this this band haven't even had a hit and they're on top of the pops or whatever but it didn't it felt like a slightly early step but I think we were we were pretty confident in our own abilities and in what and what we were doing so it just felt like a, a surprise but not one that we couldn't take in our stride at the time there was a, hmm. as a, as a again from the kind of gang us against the world mentality it was kind of like we felt like we'd done it on our terms rather than have to you know really sell ourselves to get there? Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it felt like a real kind of like an achievement that, that we were not going to take too seriously, and then uh, and then when we actually got there, I f- just it was the most nervous I think we've collectively ever been. It was the first time we kind of like you know with the the big stage was there. So yeah, it's it's a it's a fundamental moment in the history of the band, and it's a shame in a way that it happened so quickly because we were basically judged on that forever <laughs> after yeah. you know uh, everything we did afterwards was was judged in the terms of how you know had it been as successful as getting on top of the pops so each single that didn't get on top of the pops so it was another failure in, in, uh, in the music press's eyes anyway because I suppose we'd kind of bypassed the press a little bit you know it they were certainly hyping us up but the Top of the Pops thing wasn't done through newspaper pressure, it was just because the guy that produced it really loved the song and I don't think the music press really, really enjoyed being missed out in that, that part of the process.
0: Yeah, because that's interesting because I, I had a chat with um, with Dodgy and they said a similar thing was it Dodgy? No, Candy Skins and they said that they, they were whisked away to America quite early on by somebody that had caught their records and stuff and the music press just instantly didn't want to know them because they yeah. hadn't been, had been a band that they'd broken and any success that they had in the, in the UK was ignored. Yeah yeah um, totally
1: I, I think we, we you know later on we I mean essentially when the backlash happened like basically the single after Candy Pop it, you know that we were on the front of the music papers then but it, the single didn't chart and it didn't get any radio and so that was kind of it in terms of the British music press has just kind of gone oh well busted flush onto the next one yeah. and so we went you know we went to America and Japan and you know had relative success but back home you, you just wouldn't know that we were still really in operation and that's you know uh, yes I think it happens to yeah it certainly happened to a lot of bands of that era I think there's very few progressive print medias now because there's there doesn't have to be it's like you know print Print by default is the retro format and there's certain you know magazines like electronic sound are doing something a bit different you know uh you know bringing old records back to life and whatnot. but it's still heritage um and the, you know the diaspora of modern music media being all ele- you know all internet based means you know there's just there's a lot of music out there and there's a lot of music criticism and it's it doesn't have the same power uh, as it's press haiti and so but what I, I suppose what happens is you just get a lot of music, a lot of bands, a lot of solo artists that are about the same level of success. There's just, you know, everything's spread out quite thinly, and which is a more democratic, socialist way of, of doing music. But it kind of stops the... I don't know, it's hard to tell from this age perspective, but, you know, I don't feel like the age of youngsters being really getting those exciting moments it was kind of like you know seeing a band live on top of the pops you know seeing a picture in the NME that they go immediately feel that they can relate to that picture of that band.
0: You kind of championed really in, in a way you know how to be on a record deal that the right way does that make sense because you seem to just have full creative control and uh you knew exactly what you were doing and you weren't pressured or forced into doing anything in, in those terms
1: no that's, that's exactly right um it's not the kind of record deal that anyone would give you anymore but yeah i think we did hold enough sway for a certain period of time that even you know major record labels would have given us a deal that they wouldn't really have given anybody else i guess Without being too self-congratulatory, we were genuinely, you know, the hottest thing for quite well, you know, at least a few months, um, and that that gave us some power. So yeah, I mean, this this is a two it's a two uh, way street or a double edged sword. I'm trying to, trying to uh, get my metaphor right here. <laughs> Basically, I think yeah, we had all the control we wanted to have, but at certain points, we probably had too much control in terms of. I just yeah, like maybe the finished product so, uh, sound wise just like you know their first the new Transistor Heroes the first proper album you know it cost barely anything to record I'm I'm going to sound like uh, I'm just going to list my regrets but you know it's you know it's the the American label which was which was the Beastie Boys Grand Royal which is that's a you know I haven't even mentioned the Beastie Boys as to how influential they were to but you know, we were getting to put a record on our heroes' record label, and somebody there went, "Yeah, you could. You probably want to do a little bit of a remix for the American market." And all I could all I could remember was that the Manics had to do that for a Holy Bible, and it it just just sounded terrible. And so, yeah, so we just uh, we had that much control that we. Told Mike D, "No, you can't remix our album." <laughs>
0: oh, Cranky, yeah.
1: <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, but yeah. Essentially, we could have listened to some sage advice, but we're all really, really young. I was the oldest at twenty when we did that record, and John, John was seventeen, you know, and writing half the songs. And imagine a man my age now telling John Disco what songs to write—that'd be ridiculous. So, um, yeah, yeah, we 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 just trusted in our own abilities, uh, and I I think were we overly confident. Uh, yeah, because we we the first album we didn't put any of the singles on it. We just wrote a load of new songs um, because we wanted to be you know we wanted to be on Factory or something, you know. And, uh, mm. and the singles, if a song had been out before for us, that was it. It was on it was on the market. It was done. Things like that. The main. <laughs> I don't want to sound too miserable, but yeah, definitely. If somebody had, somebody had confidently said, "Go back, do that first album again," you've got you've got sixteen songs on there. Ten are good. Put the 10 plus all your singles so far re-recorded to a reasonable spec. Yeah, <laughs> That's your first yeah. album. And that's what Kinnicky did. Uh, and, the, you know, I remember thinking, oh, I can't believe they've done that. But on on, uh, on reflection, they made a better first record than we did. And so, yeah, that's, I guess, going back to the, the positive point is, uh, yeah, we were able to negotiate that amount of control. And people were kind of terrified to, of us enough to, to try to interfere. So, yeah, we, we, we got to do exactly what we wanted to do. So we all our mistakes were our own. Nobody nobody made a mistake for us um, on our on our behalf, which I suppose it's got to be a positive compared to what a lot of bands of the year went through.
0: Do you think uh, with social distancing and... Uh, sorry, social distancing, crikey. I can't believe I <laughs> made that proper. Do you think yeah. that with, with uh, social dancing and Return to yeah. Central then, in terms of what you're saying in terms of creative control had you kind of um calmed down a bit with those recordings then and just had that time to sort of lay back and a, and take stock of where you were and, and your influences again
1: yeah i think oddly i've talked about uh having too much control i think for social dancing we sort of it's not that we relinquished control but we decided that we were going to do it expensively uh properly get a producer in you know, Andy, Andy, Andy Gill from the Gang of Four, and not uh, God rest his soul, but not not because we necessarily loved any of the records that he'd worked on, but just because we loved his own music, and just we yeah, we just thought we another pair of ears in the room might just bring something else hmm. out, and as I think we were conscious that we needed to, we needed to have a, another hit. Uh, and so yeah I think the writing of it we we weren't really bothered about having a hit we just we bought a load of new technology we bought samplers and sequencers and it wasn't just the one rolling drum machine so sonically we were kind of you know we genuinely we were going in strange directions sonically and we would spend Monday to Friday nine till nine 12 hour shifts just rehearsing and writing so it's the most it's amazing that we actually held it together but yeah we were we were really determined to get these songs written and get them tight for social dancing which is total opposite of Return to Central which was yeah basically we we kind of owned the studio we were working in by that point so we mm-hmm. that, that was more of a like as again as as I say again all these dats I'm looking at in front of me there's you know there's hours worth of unreleased stuff um, which nobody at all wants to hear um, but yeah so <laughs> social dancing certainly main contribution of Of having an actual producer was that Andy listened to all the demos and kind of went there was maybe twenty demos and he went, right, these twelve are okay, the rest are shit. And so for someone like me and my ego, I had to hear that and take it on board. And just, you know, even if the some of the eight songs were the ones that I loved the most, I was we we kind of just accepted it. And then the first song he really wanted to work on was a song called Famous that I wasn't sure about and I really I really didn't like what was going on. (laughs) And so for the first For the first like three or four weeks of recording social dancing we were fighting over a song that i didn't like uh, and ultimately i got my way and we didn't have that song on the record uh, and it kind of got pushed to one side so the next one we worked on was Eurodisco, and he said (laughs) he listened to the demo and went yeah this is this has got something but it doesn't have a chorus and so (laughs) it's the only time ever somebody criticized a song i'd written and told me to do something to it and i went I went away and angrily wrote the chorus for it, and uh, he was absolutely right. It just it needed that extra bit of chorus with Amanda singing on it, and so even though Eurodisco itself wasn't wasn't anywhere near as much of a hit here as it should have been, and it felt like it was felt like it was going to be huge, and it just kind of died a death just as it was getting released, and I'm still not sure why. Um, mm. You know, it was kinda of like in the it was it was in the top twenty midweek and then it just nosedived and who knows why. But um yeah, it's it was the first Eurodisc was the first record that we put out that I was just like, Yeah, we've done something mega here. Even though it, as I say, it never it, it didn't get to the levels of, you know, records that cost an absolute fraction of the price, but it was the it was the song that we felt we'd absolutely nailed it. I suppose the rest of the the record. that was uh, looking back now. I'm like, so we knew that that Eurodisco song was going to go places. So why didn't we make any other ones that sounded like it? And this is like, like again, just because we wrestled back control and we wanted to have as diverse a record as possible. And so yeah, we you know we nailed this heavily new order indebted, admittedly. But it's kind of like, right, okay, there's that shouty riot girl band doing some sleek electro pop. Uh, and they all they all start to look the part you know that was going to be our image for that record and it just yeah it it, it just never took off in the same way you know that we we thought it would uh, you know all of a sudden we stopped selling records in Japan because they didn't like the fact that we'd grown up <laughs> yeah but we've started to do little bits and pieces in America that we hadn't really broken through with the first time. Europe was like Ironically, for a song called Eurodisco, but all of a sudden we were we were you know playing pretty big shows in Germany and Spain. But again, absolutely nothing here, nothing at all. We were just playing the same venues, uh, holding on to some of the hardcore. But you know, and I'm sorry to keep using the New Order analogy, but a bit like when the New Order ditched all the guitars and went synth heavy, we'd kind of shed some of the some of the original kids, you know. That just, yeah. just wanted to hear the, the shouty ones so we did a mini album after that called music for a stranger world it probably just should have been a record because it was it was just um, more electropop songs and that would it would have been cohesive if we'd just seen it through and then we lost our minds and um, smoked lots of dope me and John and just made a record that uh, yes yeah, a sprawling unedited uh, to some masterpiece to other absolute folly <laughs> Do
0: you wanna- Well, what happens with slight disconnects? Then I don't want to jump ahead quite a bit now because yeah, we're going into 2019. Because obviously you, you kind of, you called it a day and you you reformed a couple of times and did some shows and some sort of live stuff. Where did that record come from then? If if you'd had kind of a few years off, hadn't you, in terms of writing? Yeah, out?
1: yeah. I mean, yeah, we had stopped. We'd stopped entirely. So very brief potted history of that era We st- we kind of called it a day in about 2003 but with no intent no intention of actually splitting up and stopping making music uh our intention at that point was to for amanda to do a solo album me and john were making stuff making techno very 808 state inspired uh, as dirty hospital um so we had projects in the go and we we had our own studio that we were all invested in so it it didn't feel like a it wasn't a kind of we are stopping making music it was like a bit like that brand has gone as far as it can so we yeah so we we did a couple of those projects and then we decided that we had enough songs that um just actually start another band but play none of the old material which sounds ridiculous now so uh, we <laughs> rebranded as Data Panic, and uh, it, it basically it probably should have been BISS really but we just really wanted to distance ourselves from uh, it's not distance ourselves from the songs but just be like right we there's too many different styles of music within this, so we wanted to be this one style of band and it was data panic and it was very much a kind of po- you know post-punk new wave band wearing uniforms just like let's just do that uh, and see if anyone notices. Um, so <laughs> so we gave that a year, uh, I don't know why I specifically decided it was going to be a year to work out whether it was going to work or not. We did lots of shows and they were, they were all great but we decided to cut it. Um, so we, yeah as you say we did a couple of comeback gigs, um, we played at the main stage at Primavera for some reason, uh, they liked us there. Um, so just very slowly Started to just collate, you know collate little bits and pieces of songs that we were working on um, through having children and having actual jobs and yeah we released the odd single here and there, uh, just to kind of justify existing <laughs> and then yeah basically uh, Ian runs a not for profit local label called Last Night from Glasgow. I met him at a record fair and he he just asked what was going on with Biss. And I was kind of like, ah, nothing much really. We're just in the odd gig, odd single here or there. No actual plan. And he just said, well, if you ever want to make a proper record, come and speak to me. And so so we did. He just, yeah, he kind of like basically said, make make a record and here's your deadline. And if you make this record, I'll manufacture and distribute it for you and you don't have to do anything. He's like, yeah, okay, I think we can maybe stretch that far. So, <laughs> um, so maybe you know, we're, we're kind of like, as I say, all working all with kids John lives up in Inverness so we're kind of geographically challenged as well Um, so we did all that recording from home studios uh, remotely we only really are in a room together to rehearse or to play live but you would think that sort of recording remotely would have its challenges but I think we've worked together and know each other so well for so long that there's an instinctive you know nature to it that you can you know you can type a message that means there's an absolute gobbledygook but the other two people in your band will know exactly what you mean by it so like yeah you know make this more fruity but less salty and then it's all of a sudden I got you right okay you want me to do that vocal again uh, this way and so you never lose those uh, you know intuitive understandings so so actually making that record was dead easy Um, because as soon as the deadline was pretty close we all had to snap into action and just get the thing done and so it's been, it's retained, despite being fifteen years in the making or whatever. It's retained a spontaneity because we genuinely made some things up for the first time, recorded them, and then and then that was you know that was the finished product. So uh, liberating uh, as well as you know being infuriating.
0: So what do you think the plan is then for for Best Then in in twenty twenty one? I mean this year's a write off, I'm guessing. Yeah, but...
1: the basic plan. Well, there's never a basic plan, is there? But um, hmm. stuff on the horizon. We've had, you know, it's a mixture of uh, archive raking and new stuff. So the next, the the next release is going to be a soundtrack we did for the BBC for a cartoon uh, in the early two thousands. Uh, it was the people that made the Teletubbies. Uh, there was a, a cartoon called BB Three B, which was it was aired on like uh, Dick and Dom the Bungalow <laughs> or whatever. Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And it was it was kind of earmarked to be the next big kids show kind of like with live stage shows and whatnot and to be frank it was terrible and it absolutely <laughs> flopped and uh, <laughs> I only ran for one series we you know we had this you know basically we had a contract with the BBC to, to write the music for a cartoon and you know in the music industry everyone knows that is the absolute that's the golden ticket that's the cash cow you kind of go yeah. I've genuinely quit a job for this um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway we're actually that, none of that music has ever been officially released in Uh, I thought I'd lost the master tapes to it but uh, whilst archiving in the loft I found uh, like a master dat and listened to it and immediately was just like wow this is hilarious Mm. (laughs) (laughs) like we were making songs to order which is like the exact opposite of having all that control in the 90s as we were actually given a script and and and, you know we're not talking uh, Clint Mansell's tasteful uh, film soundtracks you know, like there's a guy from Pop Lead itself gets to do all the good soundtracks. There's best can they do some uh, <laughs> some funny, short, sharp uh, punk songs for a cartoon? Well, to be fair, we had already, so uh, we yeah. had it. it was it was on our CV already. So, so yeah, that's gonna we're we we have unearthed that material and that will be released for Christmas, which is soon. So yeah, I've just approved the test pressing and that will come out on vinyl and CD on last night from Glasgow. Um, next year we'll be looking. At a, a mixture of doing new material, uh, there's there's no lack of uh, material uh, that we just need to be told when to finish it for. Um, but yeah, I'm, as I say, like now got we've all got a, we've all got a working studio at home of some you know degree. So actually recording without uh, lifting the curtain on the whole thing, recording is not expensive anymore. Um, it's not prohibitive. Uh, we used to run a recording studio and couldn't run it as a business uh, we could now but it's 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 just so much easier to record so yeah we'll be working on loads of stuff to and fro remotely uh, the, at the moment uh, <laughs> caught between doing a fairly electronic dance record and also a total song like really like you know xtc <laughs> um, Devo Blur one of the you know a classic new wave pop record so somewhere in between there and then I'm sure we'll find something else to archive after that
0: well I'll let you go I, I think you know as a potted history of this I think we can get anything better than that that was fantastic <laughs> and uh, yeah it's really interesting to hear the writing process I'm always interested to know how other bands do it and how yeah. how they did it and just you know the future of this looks good and I, I hope that to hear all the material you put out, especially on that on that label, as well as the the kids' cartoon one, that's going to we be off. something. I should. <laughs>
1: yeah, you've got to be careful with that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, again, thank you so much, uh, Stephen, for joining cool. on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure speaking to you.
1: My pleasure. Yeah.
0: Massive thanks to Stephen again for joining me on the podcast this episode was absolutely packed i hope you really enjoyed it thanks again for all your support that's really appreciated the podcast is doing really well and it's all down to you guys listening and sharing and and uh, rating and all that jazz i mentioned on the last episode that i have a ko-fi page i don't have patreon but i have ko-fi this is something where you could just do a one-off buy me a coffee type thing it's three pounds just to show your appreciation also just to help me fund the podcast the address and the link for that is in the show notes and follow me on all the socials so you've got instagram twitter and facebook just search for back to britpop and if you haven't written a review and if you haven't rated on apple itunes or apple podcasts uh, please do that because it really does help i know i say that every week but it really does anyway see you on the next episode take care